You're with Cape Talk. Absolutely, you're with Cape Talk at 9.34. Uh, we'll be interacting with the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. And that's why we're going to go to Zuki Makuzeni first, uh, in from Big Bay. She's on the line. She's given us the phone call, and she gets the first shot at the Naked Scientist. Welcome, Zuki. Hi, Clarence. How are you? I'm lekker, thank you. And how are you? I'm, I'm always good. Plans for the long weekend? Uh, lots of rest. <laughs> okay. And at least one of the questions that you always want to ask the Naked Scientist, you'll have answered. Yes. Can I go ahead? Please do. Um, okay, morning, Dr. Chris. Um, so I believe hyperchlorous acid is able to kill bad bacteria while still protecting the good bacteria on the skin. So I'm wondering how is it possible, how is it able to differentiate between the two and have an effect on the one without affecting the other? Hi, Zuki. Good morning. Did you say hyperchlorous acid? Yes. Yeah, I hadn't heard that particular claim. This is a, a chlorine-containing compound. When you dissolve bleach in water, you get some hypochlorous acid and hypochlorite. And this has an oxidizing effect on microorganisms. It's why we add these sorts of chemicals to swimming pools. We add them to cleaning fluids when we want to clean cleanse surfaces because they're strongly oxidizing and so microbes are much more vulnerable to their effects and they are destroyed so bleach containing products usually are amongst the most reliable along with things like hydrogen peroxide at dealing with surface contamination you can make sure you do hopefully get rid of 99.9 percent of the bugs that are there i don't think these sorts of chemicals can discriminate between the good guys and the bad guys though that sounds like a dodgy or iffy claim to me the the problem is when we expose ourselves to things like antibiotics it's very hard for those drugs to tell the difference between the bacteria we want to be there and the ones that we don't want to be there particularly if you use what are called broad spectrum antibiotics which are a bit like bleach as in they kill indiscriminately so really the best bet is to um, is, is to aim for when you're cleaning a surface aim to clean just what you need to clean and use something which will be as, as kind to you and the environment as possible. Sometimes you want to make sure things are properly sterilised and that's where bleach-containing chemicals come in. And, and low concentrations, like you'd find in a swimming pool, for example, are very good at suppressing the microbes, but they don't do us any harm at the sorts of concentrations that we're exposed to. But you can't say the same for, for bacteria, good or bad. Thank you, Zuki, for that question. Uh, Rod's on the line from Musenberg. Rod, go ahead for the Naked Scientist. Good morning, Dr. Chris. Uh, my question is, which is cheaper to heat up water, using electricity or low-pressure gas? Hi, Rod. Well, it's going to come down to the cost of the fuel, isn't it? Because in either case, it's effectively a fuel. The electricity coming into your house, there's a price per unit to pay for that in energy terms gas the same so it will really come down to the prevailing market rate and then the efficiency of the system you're using to convert one form of energy into another because when you're heating water you're passing electricity through a heating coil and this dissipates the energy in the electrical supply and pushes it into the water whereas when you burn some gas you are combusting the gas and you're transferring as much of the heat that's released in the combustion process into the water now if you've got a really really effective uh, geyser in your house which is extremely good at pushing all of the energy and the electricity into the water then it's going to be hard to improve on that 
if with gas though you're just burning something usually that's the cheapest way of getting heat into something because the transfer of, of energy from that source is usually extremely good and hitherto it's it's been very cost effective to use things like gas to heat a room or heat water but the world is facing an uncertain time at the moment isn't it and fuel prices are very volatile availability is very volatile same for electricity in some places so really it's going to come down to where you are how plentiful the source of energy is of any particular format and therefore you you can only answer your question by taking into account the local factors but all things being equal uh, in energy terms you're doing the same thing which is pushing the same amount of energy from one place into another into the water and therefore it should be equivalent but it will it will therefore uh, come down to to the local prices but it doesn't ever work like that we all know that Thank you, Rod. And I, I guess, uh, Chris, you know, we're all doing those calculations. What's the Absolutely. cheapest source of fuel uh, in South Africa? Um, another question in, is the reason animals except insects that are on land have four limbs due to the fact that the first creature that walked out of the primordial slime had four limbs? Is there a reason for four limbs? Or could the world have had six limbs in one stage of its existence? Well, many creatures have many more than six limbs, if you think about centipedes and millipedes and so on. And and I've been to some places, if you go to Western Australia, to the Murchison River Valley, for example, you can wander around in, in the back of beyond there. It's absolutely gorgeous. But you will see fossilised footprints of creatures that had dragged themselves out of the mud because some of the oldest rocks on Earth are both in South Africa, but also in Western Australia. And so you can see the fossil record in plain sight there and there's dinosaur footprints on the beach at Broome as well actually it's quite extraordinary but there are animals that were wandering around a couple of hundred million years ago coming out of mud and up onto what would have been shallow mud banks and shallow seas there and you can see they would have had many more than four legs some of these things based on the footprint patterns so the the reason that we tend to have the format that we do, us walking around on two legs with two upper limbs, two lower limbs, it's because we all have common ancestors. And evolution works in a form of refinement. You start with a game plan, a rough model, and then you refine it based on the, the environmental problems it has to surmount. And once you've arrived at a working solution, then you tend to stick with it because usually embodied in that working solution are millions of years worth of, of nature tinkering. So the animals that would have crawled out onto land, there would have been a range of different creatures that did this, but they would have ended up with a situation that worked well with an upper limb system a lower limb system bipedal in humans cases four limbs in the case of animals but obviously some animals do have many more but they they're not normally the ones that look like us so really the ancestor of of animals like us would have adopted that particular format because it worked and then they stuck with it somebody writes i recently read a novel in which a doctor was doing ivf for married lesbian couples uh, is this technically possible if yes has it been done before? If no, why is it not possible? Sorry, it's Colleen with that question. Hello, Colleen. The answer is this is being done all the time. Now, obviously, what you can't do at the moment is produce gametes, both sets, sperms and eggs, from single-sex couples, at least in humans. So when you do do these sorts of procedures, which are 
carried out in some countries not all countries support this but in some countries it, it is supported you would do what we do for IVF with a, a man and a woman and you use eggs from the two women you could take eggs from just one of the women you could take eggs from both and and then you could make a mixture of embryos and just randomly choose one the healthiest looking one but you mix it up with usually donor sperm and do in vitro fertilization and then you put the embryos back into one of the or both of the potential mothers and then they become pregnant in the same way that a couple who are heterosexual would the world of science is moving apace uh, though on this front and we're now at a stage where people are beginning to use stem cell technology to produce sperms and eggs and in recent years we've seen reports that scientists have managed to take stem cells or skin cells actually from adult mice persuade them to unspecialize and become stem cell like and then re-specialize themselves to become the progenitor cells that make sperms and they've been able to turn those progenitor cells into sperm capable of fertilizing eggs and then produce baby mice off the back of it no one's done it with a human there are ethical considerations also it's much more complicated working with human cells than with mouse cells the efficiency of these sorts of processes tends to be lower so no one's gone down this path yet but in the future i strongly suspect it will be possible to do this uh, but at the moment there are a number of questions not just ethically but genetically over the safety of this sort of procedure so no one's making artificial gametes sperms and eggs at the moment so we're working with what nature has endowed us with hitherto but it's certainly possible to do this and in the future i suspect people will use this sort of technology for a range of reasons we have mark on the line from newlands let's go to mark mark wants to know about the sun's power go ahead mark hey dr chris um what maintains the sun's hyper combustion why doesn't it burn out Hello, mate. Well, the answer is the sun is a massive nuclear reactor and you could pack a million Earths inside the sun, no problem. It's absolutely huge and it's been burning for about four and a half billion years and what sustains it is the fusion process where mainly hydrogen at the current age of the sun a few other chemicals as well now but mainly hydrogen when a star is first born it's hydrogen that's fusing. The pressure and the temperature in the core of the star is squeezing hydrogen atoms close enough together that the natural repulsion between the cores or nuclei of those is overcome and they fuse together they stick and when they stick together they become a bit more stable and release some energy called the effectively the binding energy in their nucleus and this energy comes out and is shared with the other atoms around the core of the star and some of that energy is then radiated out into space as the as the light that we see and therefore the warmth from the star now this is happening at a controlled rate because the temperature and the gravity of the sun holds it in a sort of equilibrium where you do this you get some heat out and then it radiates some heat out and if you fed all of the energy back into the reaction, obviously it would speed up and speed up and speed up, but it's constrained by the fact that it's losing heat, it's losing energy, and this effectively acts as a break on the reaction process, as well as the availability of the ions, the, the particles that are being squeezed together. There's a rate at which they can collide, there's a rate at which they can therefore merge and fuse, there's a rate therefore at which they can release some energy, and all these factors mean that the sun is in a sort of equilibrium where it's producing energy at roughly a steady state. 
And if you added it all up, it's producing so much energy that way that it's losing about 8 million tonnes every second in mass, which it's converting from chemical energy of those atoms that it's made of into the electromagnetic energy of the light and the heat that we feel and bask in in our orbit around the sun. And that's because of Einstein's equation E equals mc squared. E is energy, and that's equal to mass m times the speed of light squared. So if you know how much energy is coming out of the sun, you can estimate how much weight it's losing, or mass it's losing every second, and that's about 8 million tonnes. Let's go to uh, Vincent in Musenberg. Vincent, go ahead with your question for the Naked Scientist. Morning, Dr. Smith. If eating an apple a day is healthy for us, is eating more than one apple a day better? (laughs) Hi, Vincent. Well, to an extent, possibly. It depends. Um, This was demonstrated to me very elegantly by uh, a a scientist at the University of Cambridge who was talking actually about overweight and obesity. This is probably the worst pandemic that the world is confronting, where half the world population is now malnourished, but not too thin. We're all carrying far too much weight because we're eating the wrong things. And he gave me a bag of apples and said, right, these are eight apples. I want you to eat as many of these as you can in the time available. And so I started. And after about two minutes, I'd eaten an apple. He poured himself a glass of apple juice, which contained, based on the measurements on the back of the packet, the juice and pulp of eight apples, and swallowed it in about 20 seconds. And the point he made was, I've now consumed the number of calories in eight apples, and it would have taken you hours, and you would have been full far before you'd managed to pack that many calories in. So our body has natural inbuilt constraints that mean that the rate at which we normally put natural foods into our bodies constrains how many calories we get in and what sorts of nutrients we extract from them if you subvert that system by enforcing yourself to eat stuff it's not good for you but uh, that and your system is subverted by things like artificial fruit juices and that kind of thing so it's not a given that just because you increase the amount of something you take in that it's a good thing because the juice and pulp of eight apples is a lot of calories it's a lot of sugar and it's a lot of acids on your teeth so not necessarily all a good thing but if you're deficient in energy if you're deficient in some of those substances and you're deficient in vitamin c to a certain extent it could be a good thing so it's horses for courses here you need to eat what your body needs not force feed it too much of anything and unfortunately the modern world has made it very easy for us because we're seduced by all these extremely energy dense very easy to eat very palatable foods to just overeat not just apples but loads of things then the andromeda and the milky way uh, galaxies are uh, predicted to to have a galactic collision sometime in the future is it already entangled uh no i mean the andromeda galaxy is about two and a half million light years away it's our next nearest galactic neighbor so it's a bit like the milky way but it's remote and distant we can see it in the sky as a sort of smudge it was first spotted a couple of hundred years ago by astronomers who initially uh, they call these things nebulae And then when they look more closely, they realise they were distant galaxies. They weren't stars in our own galaxy. They were whole galaxies that we could see as these smudges in the night sky. And when we look at the colour of the light coming to us from these distant galaxies, you can tell which direction they're moving in. And this is because light, just as sound waves 
stretch out or compress depending upon whether something is going away from you or coming towards you. Imagine a police car coming down the street. You can hear the sound changing as the waves come towards you. You can hear it going away from you. You can tell the sound characteristic changes. Well, light does the same thing. So if we we look at a distant object in the universe, we can see where it is and how far away it is, but we can also tell whether it's moving away from us or coming towards us because the light gets compressed or redshifted or stretched out, blue shifted. When we look at the light from Andromeda, we can tell it is coming towards us. It's coming towards us reasonably quickly. And in the future, it will run through and pass through our own galaxy. And what will happen is there'll be a sort of collision in a cosmic collision, as it were. And then there'll be various interactions between the gravitational effects of that galaxy and our galaxy. And there'll be some kind of fusion where some things are captured, some things are lost, and then the two will pass on going off in their own directions again. I'm fascinated by by that. Uh, maybe a personal question. Uh, Andromeda has about a trillion suns. Um, the Milky Way has about what uh, three billion suns or is it 300 billion suns not quite 100 billion couple of hundred billion stars in the milky way something like that yeah so it's not going to be a a union on equal terms it's not going to be like married in community or property Uh, andromeda would wipe out the, the milky way wouldn't it well remember that in in a galaxy most space is empty space you're not talking about a brick wall colliding with another brick wall you're talking about something which is a lot of empty space with stars in it and a black hole in the middle uh, passing close to or through some of the uh, equivalent structures in another galaxy and this this isn't the first time we've seen other galaxies that have had interactions like this and they capture each other bits of one will be captured by bits of another there there will be some close encounters obviously um but on the whole uh, no no one's going to know for sure because we've never had it happen to us in our close quarters before but there are various models that can predict what might be the outcome and because most of this is empty space there's going to be one passing through the domain of another and and as i say gravity will dictate what the outcomes are but these things have got a lot of energy so they they might have their course changed a bit but it doesn't mean we're going to be literally tearing bits off of each other's galaxies let's go to some voice notes uh joe good morning what is the difference between gout and arthritis in your feet or in your toes oh hi joe um well the the answer is that uh, they're both uh, inflammatory conditions in joints Arthritis, which can be caused by your immune system in the case of rheumatoid arthritis or caused by degenerative change, which is more strictly called arthrosis. If you talk to a pathologist, they'll say the correct term is osteoarthrosis. But this is inflammatory change in a joint due to wear and tear because the cartilage, which is the smooth Teflon coating on the end of the bones that rub against each other has been worn down so you end up with bone on bone contact and it's extremely painful and it's inflammatory and the joints swell up and they they get red and hot and tender and stiff. Well in gout this is also an example of a joint becoming extremely um, inflamed and painful but it's generally a single joint or one or two joints that this happens to and tends to happen repeatedly and gout is called a crystal arthropathy and it is because of the deposition into the joint of uh, uric acid crystals. People who have a very rich diet and some people who for metabolic reasons have high levels of uric acid in their bloodstream, if you have high levels of anything, substances at high levels are more likely to deposit into the tissues. And people with high levels of uric acid can get 
gout crystals, uric acid crystals forming in the joint. And once you've got one crystal, the crystals make other crystals easier to form. So it's almost like uh, one, it's, it's called cooperativity. Effectively, once you've made it happen once, you make it happen much more easily for everything else. And this is because the crystals act as a nucleus to form more crystals. Those crystals, when they get in the joint space, are extremely inflammatory. They cause a massive inflammatory reaction, which is very, very painful in that particular joint. The crystals are more likely to form in your peripheries because that's where your body is colder. And crystals form better under cool conditions because the various things, the uric acid, for example, that's forming them is less soluble in cold body tissues than in hot body tissues. So you're more likely to have this happen in your hands and fingers or most commonly the joint in your big toe. And uh, the crystals form cause an inflammatory reaction, the toe swells up, the joint is very, very tender, a person with gout won't let you anywhere near it, but it's usually that one joint. Osteoarthrosis, on the other hand, wear and tear, more common with older age, and uh, tends to occur all over the body, lots of different joints, particularly the the small joints in the hands get affected, but also feet as well, and and knees and hips and so on. And those those sorts of things are not a one-off joint that gets red, hot, swollen and tender. It's many, many joints that are chronically uh, stiffened and can be deformed by the the build-up of um, deposits around the edge of the joint of, of calcium. And uh, we'll go to another voice note. Uh, let's take a listen. Good morning, team. Uh, could we ask the, the doc um, what the working theory is on uh, deja vu? I mean, like, you'll be standing at a robot, uh, a traffic circle, and then all of a sudden you'll be like, I live this, I've been here. Um, where does that come from? Uh, John, <laughs> came on, thanks. Thank you, John. Hi, Dr. John. Dr. Chris. Are you, are you not going to say, Clarence? Haven't we had this before? Uh, never mind. Uh, <laughs> the answer I mean, is... <laughs> you're standing at the lights and the lights go off. Yeah, that we have every day of our lives. But No, no, no we, I'm sure we've answered the question about... I was, I was saying we've answered the question about deja vu before. I, it was a joke. Never mind. Um, the answer is that uh, we don't know for sure because you can't ask an animal, are you having a deja vu experience? Because they, they can't tell you. And so you're restricted to experiencing this as a human and asking other humans about it we can't we can't study the brain very well we can study it a bit but we can't study the brain as invasively as we might like to try to get to the root of this but you could ask well who does it happen to when does it tend to happen why therefore might it happen and it most often happens in people who are tired or sleep deprived or they've had a period of stress And so what may be happening is that when you're very tired, your brain is losing count of how it normally runs the timeline in your memory. So when when I uh, have an experience happen to me, I relate what's happening now to other things that have happened during my day. And I therefore have a sense of time passing because I know roughly what I did in what order because I've got a sequence of events stored in my mind. And I have an insight into roughly how long those things took by roughly how many bits of information I've stored about something happening because your brain assumes that you store information at roughly 
with the same rate across a day. And this is why time appears to slow down when something scary happens to you, because when it's scary or very exciting, then you make a lot of memories about that one thing, that time your car careered into a lamppost, for example, you make a lot of memories. And so time appears to slow down because the brain assumes it must have taken ages because there's loads and loads of of memories attached to that uh, particular event. But sometimes when we get very tired, then the process by which the brain assembles that timeline and then recalls events from the timeline can get distorted. And this may be because as we get very tired, we begin to uh, recruit the wrong or, re- or, or bring to the fore the wrong memories and we, we lose track of what we're trying to think about at any one moment in time. But it, it does t- tend to happen more when we're very tired. And so that suggests it's probably a misfiring of, of the brain, which makes you have this spark of recollection and recognition when it's inappropriate. You think you've seen something before. You think that you've been down that road before. But in fact, you haven't. Uh, maybe just that 19 second question also via um, WhatsApp. Let's take a listen to that one. This is Craig from Fishuk. This is for the Naked Scientist, Chris. I'd like to find out what causes baldness and have they managed to find or are they in the progress of finding a cure for baldness? I'm a bald guy. I miss my hair. I just wanted to find out if you know anything about that. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. And, and you have a minute for that, for that answer. I'll if do you my don't. best. Um, this is a very common condition and it's called male pattern baldness and the clue's in the name. It affects chiefly men, although women are to a lesser extent afflicted. There's various genes which are carried on the X chromosome, and this is why men are more likely to be affected than women, because they have only one X chromosome. And it renders some hair follicles in some parts of the body more susceptible to the toxic effects of metabolites of testosterone than others. We don't know why this happens. We don't know why evolutionarily this should have happened. We do know that you can slow down the process by reducing testosterone levels. And this is why women are a bit less susceptible than men are. But uh, the cost to pay for reducing your testosterone levels is lower libido, bone loss and other changes in your body which go along with low levels of testosterone so it's a pretty high price to pay so scientists are looking at the opposite which is well can we put the hair follicles that we've lost back and the answer is you can you can steal them from other parts of the body you can have a hair transplant but they're also now looking at stem cell technology to try to produce new hair follicles that could one day be implanted and give you back a new head of hair and we're going to have to rest it there. Time has gone 10 o'clock, but a big thank you uh, to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Every Friday after 9.30, he answers those questions that uh, keeps you out of sleep.